0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Good morning, good morning and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and I'm your host for May as Pam has deserted the barracks in favour of northern Italy, where she's exploring gardens and historic mansions with tour leader John Patrick. Pam, on the very off chance you're live-streaming us, we hope you're having a blast. (laughs) Firstly, I'd like to say a very happy Mother's Day to all mums, but especially to my mother-in-law, Pat, and to my mum, Lee. I hope you're having a special day, and I'll see you next week to celebrate. Listeners who heard last week's show will remember, fondly or otherwise that quite a lot of time was spent talking about native plants. I certainly had a good time. Today I think we might just redress the imbalance because in the studio with me this morning are three people who who spend their lives surrounded by all manner of greenery. We have nurserywoman Margot MacDonald from the Garden Tap Nursery in Kyneton, also joining us is Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm in Clonbanane, And finally, my favourite plants person and owner of Dixonia Rare Plants, Stephen Ryan. Good morning, Stephen.
2: Good morning, AB. And it's a good morning because it's been raining. (laughs) Well, I'm
1: glad to see that everybody arrived safely, I have to say. Oh,
2: yes, yes. We all got down here uh, safely on time and with oodles of plants to talk about this morning (laughs) if we need them. But
3: gale force winds. Yes. And I come off a bush track, AB, to get onto the main road and often there are no trees dropped. So... I was just very glad this morning was clear sailing.
2: And no ruse sort of? Oh, no, plenty out. of roos,
3: yep. <laughs> You've got to go about, you know, more 25 miles an hour, k's right. an hour. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it's been interesting weather. We're now starting to get some rain. We haven't in our area, I don't know how other people have found it yet so far this autumn, but we haven't had a frost.
1: No, no, a few very chilly mornings. Yeah, chilly but mornings, not quite but oh,
2: uh, yeah, Margot probably oh, had a frost. Margot's put her hair yeah, up. She comes from Pleurisy Plains, so she's bound to have had a frost. Uh, but we haven't had a frost at Macedon yet, which is really interesting, because uh, normally we get a few autumn frosts, but we've had some, yeah, you're right, chilly mornings, but nothing that's really settled. Um, so I'm planning on a heavy frost, I'd say about four days before my opening at the end of the month, <laughs> yeah. because there's lots of slightly frost tender things that are still looking really good in the garden. So I anticipate that by the last weekend in May, they'll all be black. Oh, no. Uh, Because I've got two huge Brugmansia sanguinias in full flower at the moment, the red one and the yellow one, which are looking outrageous. And they just haven't been touched by the frost. So they'll go right through the winter if, in fact, uh, we don't get any frosty days. Uh, But if we get heavy frost, they'll drop all their leaves and flowers and look dreadful. But if I can keep them going, they'll, they'll look fantastic for the opening. In fact rather too exotic for a Macedon garden in winter but there you go yeah it's been
1: funny hasn't it because we had such a sort of poor summer that you almost expected to have those frosts coming in early
2: but look we've had some cold days but we just haven't had those really chill mornings to bring down a frost so yes it's been sort of teeth chattering days during the day but uh, and we've had a lot of overcast stuff too I guess which keeps Mm. the frosts away Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens I actually had to pull my tomatoes out I got fed up (laughs) waiting for the frost to kill them so I had to pull them out. In the end. Um, and yeah, so it's been an, an interesting autumn, but a beautiful one nonetheless. I mean mm-hmm. the, the autumn colour's nearly over. Um, uh, I've got one sorbus in the garden at home that is this absolute beacon of orange at the moment. Uh, but apart from that, most of my autumnal colour is over. Um, What's a sorbus? A sorbus is a Rowan tree. A Rowan tree. How big is it yet? Well the one I've got in my garden is sorbus domestica, which is the edible Rowan. And it would be five metres tall by three oh, metres which, yeah. wide. And so it's this big sort of conical tree. And it's close to the road. And I've actually he- heard the screech of brakes a couple of times as people have been <laughs> driving along. Because if the <laughs> afternoon sun catches it, it yeah. is just amazing. The colour, because it's not red, it's not yellow, it's that really clear orange, which is actually quite hard to get. Yeah, in looks like It looks like it's
3: on fire, doesn't it, oh, with that afternoon light coming through? It is
2: just truly really beautiful and it holds quite well too. It's been... Seriously good colour now for, I'd say, a week and a half, and we've had some wind, we've had some really dreadful mm. weather. It's still looking good. I reckon I'll get another week and a half maybe out of it. It'll have just about shed by the opening.
1: <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would
2: say. Uh, but, that look, that's, that's uh, it fine. has been a long and joyous autumn, I have to say. Stephen, I've really can I ask
4: you another question? Do you what? have any sorbus um, plants in your nursery? Yes, do I do. you fund- have any, Margo? Uh,
3: yes. I'm surprised, sorbus
4: I'm surprised you have any
2: sorbus whatsoever because Why? didn't you realise, Margot, that sorbus keep away witches? Ah. <laughs> Not that I'm suggesting anything. Uh, <laughs> shall I leave now? Yeah. <laughs> yes, apparently uh, in Scotland, you will often see sorbuses planted on either side of the front, front path oh. because witches won't walk between them.
3: Yeah, but they could fly over on their broomsticks. Yeah, so. well, they probably could. Yes, I don't quite understand. But <laughs> yeah. the
2: Scottish believe it that they will keep the witches away by planting sorbus.
3: Well, we've just planted three sorbus in our back garden. Well, if
2: some of your friends don't actually accept your invitations, <laughs> you know why? Whatever, you'll know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. they, they, yeah. But sorbus are a great little group of trees. Actually, now that we've mentioned them, because um, they have spring blossom, they often have attractive berries, they can get beautiful autumn colour. They're light, airy, small trees. They're, they're, they're the right size for an average suburban-sized front yard, really. Um, and they give bang for bucks. I mean, you get a variety of things happening throughout the whole year. Uh, and they're generally pretty tough. They certainly cope with any amount of cold. Um and once established seem reasonably drought tolerant.
3: Yeah. I think uh, they're really tough actually. Yeah. yeah, we've had some that have well oh, the ones we planted, because our sort of new garden is going to be the hospital garden. You know, oh. anything that's sort of broken or oh, left over. Yes. Um, and yep. I we, call them my refugees. All oh, right, the <laughs> re- ref- refugee garden, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we had three sorbus which were really pot bound and long and gangly. They've sort of hidden up the back and I've forgotten about them. But the colour, yes, is superb and they're, they're absolutely fine. The and have they recovered? Little, yeah, they're happy as Larry. It's always
1: such a great test, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you've yeah. got something in in pots completely pop bound, and you pull them out, and they look like they're about to drop dead, and <laughs> a couple of months later they reshoot, and yeah, you know, it you does got a make tough me laugh
2: though when people come into a nursery. I have had people spend inordinate amount of times uh, picking between three virtually identical plants trying to get the good one. <laughs> when they could when they should only realize that, as long as the plant is in reasonable health it's really what they do with it afterwards that matters it's not which one's got three more leaves uh, when you buy it from the nursery uh, uh, in fact, i don't know what it is, but well I guess after thirty five years running my business i in, in sort of ordinarily will pick out the best of a batch without even thinking about it if somebody asks me to grab them a tree. Um, So you have a sense of which is the best. But I do exactly or have done over the last 35 years exactly the same thing as Margot's talking about. If I've got something at the nursery that has been knocked over and broken or has dried out at some stage and its leaves are burnt or you know for whatever reason is basically unsaleable people just won't buy it because they won't believe you that it'll come good. They're the things I planted my garden with. And now my garden's
3: open to the public.
1: (laughs) There you go. Well, I totally understand how people spend a lot of time trying to pick plants because often you have an image in your head of what you want a plant to look like. And I spent ages and ages choosing a very specific Eucalyptus porsifloria, the snow gum, because I wanted that really kind of those weird um, arms, you know, branches coming out on all angles. And I didn't want one that went straight up. So I I get people that spend a lot of time. Although
2: you are completely different to most people. Most people pick out the one that looks like a power pole. Yeah, uh, they want disappointing, that straight, isn't it? yeah straight one. I mean, if you've got a young birch that you're trying to sell and it's got two trunks on it, people <laughs> walk past it. And yeah. You think, it's going to have two trunks. It's going to have twice as much beautiful bark. Why wouldn't you buy that one? Yep. And and I have spent a lot of time trying to convince some customers that the odd king can twist in a tree or mm. multiple trunks and things can actually be part of the oh, character yeah. of the plant. absolutely. Um, but they seem to think a plant has to be sort of, I don't know, put together by a committee um, <laughs> where there's really sort of – formalised look. Um, And for me, that's not what a garden plant is all about. I actually want them to have a character of their own. And sometimes the more gnarly, twisted and bent and strange they are, the better. In fact, I've even been known to plant trees on an angle to encourage that effect. You know, don't plant your trees straight straight up and down. Plant it on an angle. That will encourage it It to throw branches out in all sorts of different directions. I've also been known to chop the whole top off a tree. Um, so take it home. It was four foot tall. Suddenly it's two feet tall, but then I'll get multiple trunks. Um, I manipulate things to do what I want them to do in the garden. Um, in fact, it's something we don't do in this country is a lot of pollarding, coppicing, um, all that sort of manipulating of plant material. I mean, we prune the roses. That's sort of something we expect to do and we prune the fruit trees, but you're pruning them in a sense for flowering, not always necessarily for the, the aesthetic appeal of the plant.
3: Mm. And yet, Stephen, when people go and have a trip overseas to France particularly, they'll come back and say, oh the street trees were so beautiful Yeah, and it's because they've been manipulated over yeah. many years. Mm. And you
2: go to Japan and you see all that beautiful yes. cloud pruning and, and mm. those big conifers that have all been trained out into these yeah, incredible layers. Yeah. And, and it's all man-made. None of it's natural growth. No. Um, and people get so excited when they see it, but they never think to do it in their own gardens.
1: Well, I wonder if partly that's because, I mean, England and Europe has such a strong heritage of, you know, as you say, manipulating plants, whereas in Australia maybe we don't have enough people to teach us.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, we we don't actually
2: see it. Yeah, well, and we don't see a lot of that sort of stuff. I mean, I do it in the garden at home because I often want to plant something for a texture or an effect that I know is going to get too big if it's just allowed to grow naturally. Uh, for instance, like I have in the garden at home a gold leaf catelpa. Now, for anybody who knows mm. what a catelpa looks oh, like, they gorgeous. get these great big soft leaves on them, and the gold one has this really soft yellowy-green foliage, particularly in the spring. Um, and it can grow into a small to medium tree, so it could get, I don't know, seven or eight metres tall. Um, but I... Well, pollard almost, uh, because I leave a stump. I don't Mm -hmm. cut it right to ground level. But I cut it down every year uh, to more or less the same point, so perhaps about a metre off the ground. And in a good growing season, I can get a metre and a half, two metres of growth on it in the following season. And with extra big leaves, because the plant's been pruned hard, so it grows vigorously after the pruning. And so I actually get even better leaves, and they're in the border, not above it. Mm. And that's what I want. I want the leaves down at eye level and just a little above so that it mixes in with the selvias and all the other things that are in the border. I don't want it way up there casting shade over everything. So every winter it takes me five minutes with my secateurs. Although last year it took me even less with the chainsaw because I decided to take it down even lower, uh, which invigorated <laughs> it all the more, I might add. It, mm. it sent up sort of three metre canes after I'd pruned it down with the chainsaw down to about... Oh, half a metre, I suppose, because mm. uh, it was getting twiggy and I was getting bored with the twigginess in the middle. So I just thought, all right, well, I'll slice all the top off and see how it goes. And it just went gangbusters. Mm. So it's been
4: looking stunning in the border. Yep. S- Stephen, by doing by some, some pruning or trimming that you, you, you're talking about, and I think one of the major features people select plants for first in their mind, I'm talking about ordinary gardeners, mm. is this going to get through a drought? Uh, yeah. Look. And if you do trim... Does that help it through the drought?
2: Look, I don't know whether it actually helps it through the drought necessarily, but certainly it doesn't seem to uh, have any real impact on the vigour of a plant. I mean, you can go on doing this. I mean, my catalpa has been coppiced now for 10 or 12 years. Every winter it gets cut back. And it's still vigorous as bilio, uh, still perfectly healthy. Um, the only issue, of course, with catelpas or a lot of those things that you can do that with – You get great foliage, but if it's something that can flower, it rarely will, because you need to get some old wood into a plant, particularly a tree, Hmm. to get flowers on it. But I'm not growing it for that purpose. I'm growing it for its great big leaves, and it certainly has done remarkably well. And so it's just starting to shed its foliage now, Uh, end of June, early July. I'll cut it right back, just leave stubs of the current season's growth, so about two sets of buds is all I'll leave. And then next year, where one stem was, I'll have two strong shoots that will come up. And you do that for several years. And then, when, it, as, as I said, when it gets really twiggy and, and disgusting looking inside, mm-hmm. uh, then I'll slice back below where I've um, pruned before and start it off again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how long I can keep doing that, but I don't care.
1: Yeah. It's a really good excuse. I mean, if you've got plants in the garden that are, are looking a bit sort of worse for wear and scraggly, but, mm. you know, you really like them but you're hesitant about what to do with them, just I reckon just experiment, chop yeah. them down. That's, and
2: that's, that's look, the worst that's thing that can in the happen garden. is you can kill it. Yeah, well. <laughs> and then you get a gap. Yeah,
3: But, Graham, I think you're quite right. If you do keep pruning things back, the plant after a few years gets the message it's just not going to be allowed to grow to its normal height. Mm. <laughs> you reckon it, it gets the message? Well, no, it does. In a lot of cases, you look at box hedging. Like, you, people plant four to a metre. Now, after a few years, they stop trying. They'll only grow a little bit each year. But mm. technically, every one of those four plants in a metre is a big tree. Mm. But they, they stop. So, and you really don't have to water a box too much mm. after it's been, you know, settled yeah, it's there. It's pretty tough. Actually,
2: yeah. I stood next to the Guinness Book of Records tallest box hedge in the world once. Believe it or not. A forest? No, no. It was, it was actually a hedge, although I must admit a very wobbly, gappy, strange hedge. But it was in a uh, a property called Burr Castle in the centre of Ireland, and their box hedge had to be 35 feet tall. Why? Because you can. I don't know. <laughs> it's been there for probably 100 years, yeah. and at some stage or another, somebody had obviously decided that they were going to grow it taller and taller and taller and not prune it down. Um, and so now apparently it's supposed to be in the Guinness Book of Records. I mean, I haven't been in to check, uh, but it's supposed to be in the Guinness Book of Records, and it's got to be at least 30 feet tall. Is I've it pruned? Seen, uh, it is trimmed up on the yeah. sides, to, yeah. to, but you know, because it's so old, it's, it's not nice and neat, or at uh, least it yeah. wasn't when I was there. It was, you could see it being trimmed, but it wobbled yeah. all over the place. I mean, you can't expect a box hedge to be nice and firm at that sort of height, nice. um, but it was a quite remarkable thing to see. And, yeah. and it just goes to show that you can't trust nursery labels very well <laughs> because if you wait long enough, almost anything will grow far bigger than you anticipate. Yeah, but, you know, I always say to people, people will always ask how big something grows. They rarely ask how long it takes or how wide it grows, they'll mm. ask how tall it gets, mm. but they won't ask how wide it grows, which is often far more important. Mm,
1: absolutely. Because I've
2: actually had people say no to something that in a 1,000 years might be a 100 feet <laughs> tall, <laughs> but they'll plant a weeping elm that will cover a whole suburban block in your lifetime, <laughs> uh, but doesn't grow tall. <laughs> mm. And so people don't seem to get the idea that the air up there is free. In a sense, you can take up that space. Yeah, plenty if you want.
3: of room up there. Yeah,
2: but if it comes out at eye level or below, well, it takes up space. Mm. And so a tall, narrow thing is often far better than a, uh, a broad, spready, flat thing uh, like a weeping elm or a weeping cherry or birch or whatever. Because uh, as pretty as those trees can be, they can they can end up covering vast areas uh, and mm. at eye level which means that they actually do take up space. Mm. Whereas something quite tall and svelte, I mean, I planted a weeping sequoia denron in my garden at home and it's a weeping version of the world's bulkiest tree. It's not quite as tall as the Sequoia Sempivirans, but it's those great big giant big trees that they have in North America where they drive cars through the middle of the holes and all that sort of stuff. And I planted one of those in my garden. And it, the, the champion tree of its type in Wales is 108 feet tall, or at least it was last time it was measured. And you can still almost get your arms three quarters of the way around the trunk. Uh, but it's 108 feet tall, but the side branches hang straight down, so it virtually doesn't take up much more room than the trunk does. Mm. So, in a sense, you could have a tree like that in a suburban garden, and it actually wouldn't be an issue because it's not actually shading anything. It's this huge, big, tall digit of a thing, uh, although mine's going off in odd angles because the cockatoos keep taking the top out of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's something they don't have in Wales, apparently. Um, and so, I'm, and this thing is probably within four metres of my house. It's now probably five or six metres tall. Uh, Most people don't even notice it's there because it's so skinny. Mm. And there's other things around more at eye level. So it's sort of erupting through the crown of the other shrubs in the garden. And I just have this sense that I've planted a potential landmark.
3: Sounds like it, <laughs> it definitely does. Yeah. I think the thing about
1: planting tall trees, I think a lot of Aussies are a bit hesitant because we're so used to yukes dropping branches yeah, all over yeah. the place that yeah, yeah anything, anything that's above three metres is a bit terrifying really. Yeah.
2: But anything that's not above three metres isn't a tree, it's a <laughs> it <is>. Well and <laughs> truly. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, I regularly have people who also ask for a tree for their front lawn and when you say how big they say, oh, two to three metres there. <laughs> and you think, what are they doing, bonsaiing something? I mean, for goodness sake. Flowering gum. Yeah, well, a tree needs to be big enough to pull the house into the environment to be really called a tree. If it's not sort of roof level or above, then it's a shrub, surely.
4: Say that again.
5: Yeah. It's got to be
2: taller than the roof line of the house for it to pull the house into the environment. Oh, yes. Because if it isn't above the house, then the house becomes the dominant feature, Mm -hmm. which in most cases isn't what you want because most people's houses aren't that cute. You know, so you actually want to pull the house into the environment so that it doesn't become the dominant eye-catching feature. The trees should. Uh, and then your house just becomes an incident amongst them. Mm. And so your trees need to be tall enough. And, of course, if you're going to take it to the extreme of uh, – well, not the extreme, but you're going to take it to the, the level of passive solar and all the other things that you can get, quite obviously the trees have to be big enough to shade your house if you're going to get any passive solar benefit. yeah so you know so they do have to be a reasonable size yeah and I think so, botanically
1: so, speaking I think trees need to be above six meters and with a single trunk that mm. that's that's your tree I mean some shrubs sort of fall into that but yeah
4: so so you I like your terminology most houses in Australia aren't cute no they're not Our I houses tell you just what, tend not to be cute I've just here. spent some time at Hillsville and to okay. walk around the suburban area of Hillsville there's a lot of cute houses mm. there Mm. It's got loads of character. Mm. And I, my years as being a build, building inspector, I used to get sick of oh. going into non-cute houses and uh, things. Look, I get oh, so many people... not pe- this again. Yeah. But
2: I get so many people who come into the nursery looking things to hide their house or their shed or their fence yeah. or something, and I say, oh, well, you, you can a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're, oh, well, neighbours, I can understand, but, you know... People, you know, I get them coming in looking for something to hide the shed, and I said, well, why didn't you just build an attractive shed, and then you can have it in the landscape? Make it a feature. Yeah, I, and we did that. I mean, when, when uh, we bought the house next door, as some people are aware who've been to my garden openings, and when we bought the house next door, it was a seriously ugly brick veneer box, dark brown tile roof, um, a mission brown aluminium wind-out steg bar windows, the whole dreadful thing. It That's was just, probably someone's
1: dream home Stephen. I am sorry <laughs> <laughs> I apologise but from our
2: perspective it was an ugly house. The only thing it had going in its favour was that it was very square it wasn't tricky mm-hmm. so it was a very even box mm-hmm. so we took the roof off put a pitched roof on it with dormer windows. A few finials help a lot. Um, Sash windows, uh, tin roof in the country. I can't understand why people put tile roofs in the country. It just doesn't look right. So a Colourbond tin roof. We bagged all the walls, um, covered the place in Boston Ivy, and it looks (laughs) stunning. You know, it's a beautiful house now. Um, And you could have built the same thing with the money that they'd spent on the box in the first place. Mm. I mean, it cost us a lot of money to renovate the house uh, and put the extensions on and stuff. But you could have easily built that house for the same amount that they paid for the dreadful sort of brick thing that they put up. And, and we also inherited one of those dreadful tin McEwen sheds. And it was the first thing that went there showing was, your age mature now. Now, yeah, is no longer there, but you know the sort of things I mean. They were those little almost flat roofed things. yeah we had a little one. little sort of louver windowy thing <laughs> that really didn 't work very well, uh, and the door that you'd bump your head on when you went through, uh, and, and moisture used to condensate on the inside of them, so anything you tried to store in there would go moldy. and we had a friend with absolutely no taste who was very quick to take the shed away. Uh, for us so we didn't have to take it to the tip or anything. Somebody took it away for storage. Couldn't get rid of it quickly enough and we built a cute shed because you still Mm. need storage. So now we've got a shed that's actually part of an axis that, through the garden. So you look up one pathway and it's the front door of the shed, again with a little finial on the top and 45-degree angled roof and you know weatherboard walls painted green and white, really cute. You come at it from another angle and then you look straight at the side window that we put in. That's a little lead-light window and we've got succulents growing all over the roof. So, I was
1: going to say, I seem to recall you had things on the roof. Yeah, yeah. Intentionally. Intentionally.
4: So, so, the, so the finials made it.
2: Look, it's like, you know, you can't have too many handbags. I always figure you can't have too many finials. Uh, uh, And dormer windows always make a house, as far as I'm concerned. If you can whack a few dormer windows into something, it gives it character.
4: Got to have the dormers.
2: Yeah, I think so. And it has to have sash windows. You've got to have sliding sash windows, because if you put any sort of other window into a dormer, it looks wrong.
1: So, yeah. in your previous life, you were an architect, right? Steve? I must <laughs> be. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I think I probably designed St Paul's Cathedral or something yeah, right. in a previous <laughs> incarnation. And uh, now the whole place is ca- hidden by the garden. Is that right? Well, in a sense, it is. Uh, I mean, the garden certainly envelopes everything in in our life. I mean, the house we live in—the original one—is now a two-story, dormer-windowed, finialed house. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, the trees envelope. The house yes. And things I've planted are all now getting up to a height where you have to peer down the driveway to get little sort of views of the house, um, which is the way I like it. I mean, I don't want my house to be, you know, it's like, it's like these people who build on, on a tiny little block and they build this huge big McMansion and it's all about the house. Mm. You know, it, mm. it's almost like they're just trying to show off their, their wealth. Mm. And, mm. you know, I don't have wealth, funnily enough. <laughs> uh, I'm a nurseryman. Um, but for me, it's all about being subtle. Mm-hmm. About things, you know, everything in your in your in your life should have, you know, a certain subtleness, a, a little bit of class about it. But you're not too too showy mm-hmm. about it, and mm-hmm. so you want things to evolve and 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 sort of to come into people's perception as they walk in. You don't want everything to be in. In people's face, mm.
1: and if you do build something smaller, you might be able to afford, you know, a, a, a veranda even and some eaves and yeah. you know, a, a, mm. a cuter house. Yeah, basically, well, and a smaller but cuter. Us end more up character. with a house that's
2: too big, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and then you spend all that time paying it off, and then you downsize and What's paying the for the out?
1: heating and the cooling, mm. and yeah, yeah it's yeah. crazy. Yeah,
2: no, I think we, we need to be more realistic about how we live, and I don't know what it is in suburban Australia, we just do ugly houses everywhere, and it just
4: well, it's sad. if we really start to look at the cost to our environment, the biggest cost that happens in Australia is what we spend on housing. Mm. It's huge. Mm. And it's, it's, it's the, a lot of the materials used, especially volatile organic compounds, are just, quite frankly, rubbish. Mm. Yeah, Terrible.
2: Well, there's a house, a house not far away from me that's been built out of polystyrene blocks. And I think, why would How you do weird. that in the country? Mm. Uh, apart from anything else, if, if even a little bit of that concrete rendering over the top of it Mm. is flaked off, that stuff's really volatile and it'll go up like mad if it gets set on fire. Mm. And, in fact, if you're a burglar, you could just cut through the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I I just don't get those sort of building materials out in the bush. I mean, I don't have a problem with, you know... um, timber cladding houses in the bush, because they can be just, I think, as easily protected as a, as a brick house can, really, mm. um, depending on how you work your, your garden around it and watering systems and all that stuff. Um, but I can't believe people would build in polystyrene in the bush. Yeah, very it's strange. Just, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, and yeah, I don't get tile roofs in the bush either, not only because of their visual impact but also all the leaves and things catch in the tiles mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing whereas with a tin roof everything slides mm-hmm. to the bottom mm-hmm. you can you can clean a tin roof really easily and uh, uh, and of course you can lie in bed and listen to the
4: rain
1: always a good thing yeah. and,
4: t- and tiled roofs let moisture in mm-hmm. have you ever been up in a ceiling of a house when it's been raining it's amazing the amount of moisture that actually actually filters through into the ceiling area of the house it's very. It's oh, very that's probably a passive cooling system. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this a building program?
4: Yeah. Yes. yeah apparently, it yeah, is.
1: now. I think we should get on. to some <laughs> community announcements. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So today we have got uh, the wonderful Cruden Farm. Open and it first opened um, in 1988, and today mm. is um, the 23rd time it's been open. Um, and of course,
2: like everybody else's, it's last opening. It's the for last open one. gardens Australia. Yeah, mm.
1: yeah. So if you're wondering what to do for Mother's Day, um, like a nice nice garden to visit, head on down to Cruden Farm. Um, At 11 o'clock, Professor Ginny Lee will be giving a talk on the landscape and the gardener, a ramble through Cruden's Farm favourite places. So you um, can get a bit of a spiel there. And at 12.30 and 3.30, there will also be guided garden tours. Uh, Refreshments are available or you're welcome to bring a picnic. The address is, um, or entry I should say, is from Cranhaven Road, Langwarren. And um, no entry for buses of over 25 seats unless they've pre-booked. Uh, entry is $15, no charge for children under 18. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's crude and farm. And um, on Friday the 15th of May, there's the, um, the self-guided tour of uh, nurseries in the Dandenongs. Um, and this is run by um, in, uh, an organisation encouraging women on horticulture. Um, now I'm actually not sure how a self-guided tour works. Is that where everybody stays in their cars and yeah. follows a leader, basically? Well,
2: you'd be you go to the first spot, I imagine, and then you'll be given maps or or what have you to then go around mm. to all of the different places that are on the list. I assume that's
1: how I would organise
3: and a I, self-guided. You don't course. have to do it in the specific order, so that there's not oh, everyone arriving yeah, at the same that time. Makes
1: sense mm. it does say um, RSVP for lunch by Friday, 8th of May. To, uh, and this is an email address, uh, so membership at ewha.com.au and indicate if you would like a lift and or can carpool and you may join the tour at any point in the schedule provided. And the proposed schedule is 9.45am uh, at Yarra View Nursery, which is a production nursery in Mount Evelyn, um, at 11 o'clock Karanga, um, that we all know so well in the Wanda North site. Uh, um, Eleven forty-five. Oh, there's a, a retail tour of Karanga Nursery and lunches there. Uh, One thirty is Payon Nursery, formerly Cascade Nursery, which is in Monbulk. And at two thirty, Yamina Nursery, also in Monbulk. So um, that's Friday the fifteenth of May.
4: Uh, yes. I have the pleasure of announcing about a working bee at the Blackburn Lake Sanctuary on Saturday the sixteenth of May, and people are asked to bring their gloves. And but if they don't have any tools or can't forget to bring some tools, there's tools and and gloves provided, and um, the activities commence at the visitor centre. So that's on the 16th of May at the Blackburn Lakes Sanctuary.
3: Next one? Yeah. yeah. Um, coming up on Wednesday the 20th of May, and that's an odd time, midweek, so uh, for people that are not working on the Wednesday the 20th of May, there's going to be Friends of Burnley Gardens plant sale. Now, that's always good. There's um a range of native exotic and produce plants, and if you go to the outside of the main building at Burnley Campus... And you can park on Yarra Boulevard, uh, Melway's Map 45, X872. Anyway, you can see the website for the plant list and other details. But funds raised go to the Burnley Gardens Project, which is always really good because um, that's a lovely public Absolutely, park. and they
1: do have a lot of stuff there.
3: They do. Yes, indeed. Very exciting. And the things you won't find just in your normal nurseries, probably even now, Stephen.
1: Quite probably. <laughs> probably. <Yeah. laughs>
3: Um, on autumn, uh, The autumn show is going to be uh, on May 23rd and 24th for the Sarcochylus Festival Now Stephen, you explained to me that is a certain type of orchid It's a so genus
2: that, of orchids, yes yeah.
3: Ground <laughs> orchids or trees? Or? They're, uh,
2: they're, I think they're more epiphytic than ground orchids, I could be wrong But I've got yeah. a sense that the Sarcochylis tend to be more epiphytic style of orchids
4: Tell us what epiphytic is Grows on
2: trees. <laughs> grows on trees, yes, there uh, Yes, or grows up in the forks of yeah. trees or yeah. whatever. Yes. Not on the ground. Yes, off the ground. Yeah. But it doesn't of course, need if soil. it was lithophytic, it would grow on the side of rocks. So oh. there you go, if you just want me to well, throw out some more terms. <laughs> we
3: didn't really ask that, Stephen, no, no, but anyway, you there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and anyways. one day you'll ask
2: me what uh, Hesterostylus means no, we as won't
3: well. Ever.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so the Sarcochylus uh, autumn show is on at the Maribyrnong Orchid Society. Rooms, and that is uh, May 23rd, 24th. Where does it say? Oh, the Community Centre, Randall Street, Maribyrnong, 9 till 4pm. So that two days next, uh, or two weekends from today. Two weekends, yeah. Yeah, and uh, finally, our lovely own Penny Woodward is giving um, a herbs and pest repellent plant talk. Actually, a bit more, it's called a masterclass. Not to be missed, and that's at St. Earth up our way on Sunday the 24th of May, 11 till 3pm. And she's a passionate gardener, of course, as you know. Bookings can be made by phone or online at the Garden of St. Earth. Will I give the phone number? Yep. Sure. For those with pens, 5368 6514. And that is Sunday the 24th of May.
2: All right, well, I've got a couple as well. Um, <clears throat> there's a gardener's day out for 2015 being run by the Royal Horticultural Society of Victoria. Uh, it's on uh, the Saturday the 13th of June, so it's a little way in advance, but nonetheless it's a good idea to get organised for these things. Uh, it's from 9.30am. Uh, it's at the Ruston Theatre, Deakin University, Burwood Highway, Burwood. Um, and it will be Graham and Sandra Ross from Better Homes and Gardens. Um, and uh, we'll also be finding out what the 2020-20 vision is. And I won't tell you, because unless you go, you won't find out. <laughs> um, and... Uh, There, the whole program starts at nine thirty. There's, it's entry ten dollars. A light lunch is available for fifteen dollars. Entry and lunch must be paid for by the thirteenth of May. There'll be plants and goods for sale. Uh, There's free undercover parking and public transport nearby. So you need to RSVP by the thirteenth of May, and um, you could do so via phone on five three six seven. 6363, uh, or you can email uh, plantzia, plantzia at bigpond.com. So that's with the Royal Horticultural <laughs> Society of Victoria, their Gardener's Day out. I did one for them some years ago. They're great fun days, so well worthwhile getting involved with. And also coming up, uh, the Australian Garden History Society um, is having a day on. The 29th of May, Friday the 29th of May, called Trees, Natural and Cultural Values. Um, It's um, 8.30am for a a 9am start to 530 so it's a full day. Uh, The forum is going to reflect on the natural and cultural values of trees in Australia, recent research, historical perspectives and future directions uh if you are interested in um booking for this particular event and again you'll need to book uh you can ring uh zero four one eight five nine zero eight nine one or you could do the booking thing via the internet uh on the three w's dot trybooking dot com forward slash capital g i n v so there you go so
4: that's two rather interesting events coming up.
1: Fantastic. And Graham, you've got one last one?
4: Oh, yes. I have a seminar that we're holding at the Silky Gardens Rose Farm at Clonbanane. And to get to us at Clonbanane, we're right next to the Hume Freeway. And if you come up the Hume Freeway or down the Hume Freeway, you'll see the Clonbanane signs. So when you come up the ramp off the freeway, you'll see Silky's Rose Garden signs. And we're having a day or a seminar uh, from 11 till 2 uh, and part of that seminar will be um, um, encouraging people to grow roses from their own seed and do you know that you can grow roses quite easily from their own seed and th- that that rose if you put seed in now you could have it flowering by November of this year and you can register that rose on the world register for fifteen dollars and that's your rose for the for the for the rest of the time it's registered.
2: One hopes, though, people are a little selective. Yes. <laughs> because there's already <laughs> enough roses out there in some ways. Uh,
4: Stephen, uh, you, that's a really good point. Seeing, yeah. seeing last year we had 62 new oh, no. releases. 62? <laughs> so how
2: can you... Well, you probably can't possibly keep up. No. You, if you've got that number of new releases coming out. But the, the great
4: thing about it is we're in a position now to be very selective. And uh, quite frankly, the rubbish is gone. Yeah. And um, we're getting roses now that are, are a lot... More healthy, mm. and a lot um, of roses that don't need so much anywhere near the amount of spraying, which is really fantastic. Yeah,
2: mm. yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so if you if you decide to go into breeding roses, though, is it not a good idea to have some sort of sense of what you're aiming for, or or do you are you a believer in sow everything and see what comes up and, no,
5: and no.
4: surprise plants? Yes. Yeah. Being <laughs> being a, a, an avid breeder of of um, many different types of things amongst Poultry and budgies and cattle, um, my mentor would say, put the best with the best, mm-hmm. forget the rest, mm-hmm. and that's the best way to work. And of course, um, if you're looking at health and vigour, you could begin by using some crosses from the from the um, uh, ground cover roses, yeah. which are um, now world famous and have the ability to withstand um, black spot and, and mildew. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's the best policy. Put the best with the best.
1: Mm, Great. So that's on Saturday, the The sixteenth of May. Yep.
4: Between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Wonderful. Fantastic. Sounds like a really good, fun thing to do.
1: Great. All right. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm, and Margot MacDonald from the Garden Tap Nursery. Now, without a doubt, that's a lot of horticultural knowledge sitting here in the studio. So if you've got a question or simply want to brag about something that's going on in your garden, we'd love to hear from you. There is nobody on the outside line today, so no shy callers calling in. <laughs> you have to come through to us on air. And that number is nine four one nine oh one double five. So it's nine four one nine oh one double five. Now in the meantime One of my favourite parts of coming into the show is learning about new plants. And because I live in an area where I can only put in indigenous plants, I I really feel like I miss out on a lot of exotic beauty. So when I come in, I'm always inspired and excited by what um, everyone else has brought in. And um, there certainly is a large array today. So, um, Stephen, why don't we start with some of the ones that you brought in? All right. Well,
2: I have to say one of my favourite plants of this season... Uh, the osmanthus, and I bought in a sprig of osmanthus fortunei, which is one of the hybrid ones, and it has a really quite remarkable and different fragrance. Uh, once you've smelled an osmanthus, you'll always remember the scent. It's it's and it wafts on the air. So from a distance, that plant when it's in full bloom, you can smell it from meters and meters away, and it. it it's a sort of a f- strange fruity sort of fragrance. It's
3: quite citrusy.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a very strange fragrance. I find it very hard to describe. Although having said that, when it's on, the, on a warm autumn day, on the breeze, from a distance, it smells different than it does close up. And I reckon it has an almost um, uh apricot-y smell to it uh, when it's in the garden at a distance. Now, the osmanthuses are all, without doubt, good, hardy evergreen shrubs. They'll cope with cold, they'll cope with heat. Uh, they're shade tolerant. Um, they will grow in full sun as well. Um, they can be trimmed and pruned. Many of them can make good hedging plants. Some of them grow tall enough to be good screening plants. Uh, I guess the only issue with osmanthus in some people's minds is that the group is not overly fast growing. You know, they'll, they'll put on a few centimetres every year. Eventually they'll get to quite good sized shrubs, but they're, they're not the world's fastest growing things. But that has the advantage, I guess, in the long term, particularly if you're growing just a hedge or a screen, that you don't have to trim it as often. So if it gets to the maximum height you want, a once a year trimming over after flowering would probably be all you'd need to do for 12 months. So I think they're grape shrubs. They should be grown more. Uh, I've started, in fact, to um, put a collection of them together in my own garden. Uh, I think at last count I had 22 different osmanthuses, wow. um, and that's including variegated forms and, you know, different, different forms of the one species. Uh, apparently the genus is about 30 strong, so it's not a hugely big genus. Um, and it's got a really weird distribution, which includes one in New Caledonia, of all things, mm-hmm. uh, which I only found out quite recently and I'm still sort of somewhat in shock because <laughs> uh, I would never have expected to find an osmanthus in the new Caledonian flora. Why
1: not? Because it's sort of
2: such a tropical flora mm-hmm. uh, and sort of a southern hemisphere organised flora and most of the osmanthuses tend to be Asian. Um, so it's just sort of this disjuncts. Seems out of place. Yeah, it does seem yeah. out of place. But anyhow, I think they're a great group of shrubs. Some are spring flowering. Most are autumn, early winter flowering. Uh, there's quite a number of, strange and different perfumes so they don't all smell the same. Uh, in fact, one of the spring ones, I always um, uh, say to people, it smells a bit like that old-fashioned coconut suntan lotion <laughs> yeah. people used to use in pre-melanoma days. Um, and um, uh, so
3: I think they're a good group of shrubs that we tend not to see used as much as we should. Uh, yeah, I think there's a resistance only because... The flowers aren't showing off. Though mm. they stick close to the stems. Yeah, they're tiny little white yeah, tiny things. Tiny yeah. little white things, they're they're sort of subtle. I know but I have to say I'm, I'm so,
1: Yeah, I'm so surprised that there's so much fragrance for such a tiny mm, flower. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But when you think about it, a lot of perfume flowers tend to be that way. I mean Daphne's
2: not exactly a large flowered showy shrub in some ways. Um, and there's lots of others that, you know, have charming scents, but quite small flowers. So I guess, you know, a lot of plants put their eggs in whichever basket is easiest and, and they can't do everything. <laughs> um, but I have to say, I do like the foliage. I think they're a good foliage mm. shrub. Uh, they're solid, they're green. Uh, the variegated ones, there's some very handsome ones of those out there. Um, and there's some that are quite dwarf.
3: Yeah, uh, and they take the frost too, oh, most yeah. of them. There's yeah, a couple yeah, pretty, that won't, but yeah. most of them
2: do. Most of them are pretty tough. Yeah. And so I think that they're a group of shrubs we should look at more. Uh, and in fact, they're very, very um, popular in China. I mean, you can go in China and Japan. You can actually sit in the pavilion that's built to smell the osmanthus from. Are you joking? Like that. No, I'm what not. A good they're, idea. They're, they're a They're an iconic plant in China. In fact, I had a a Chinese lady in the nursery recently specifically looking for an osmanthus, and she nearly wet herself with excitement when I could show her about 10 different (laughs) varieties. Um, And so they are an iconic Asian plant. So as I said, having one from New Caledonia is really weird. Um, But yeah, I think osmanthus are really good. I've got such a good collection of them now that I am actually starting to document the collection for registration. Um, So I'll register my collection with the Plants Trust People, Garden Plants Conservation Association, uh, so I'm getting it sort of documented at the moment and I'm adding to the collection where I can I picked up three that I didn't have in my collection from Yamina, uh, uh collector's plants recently uh, so I'm on the hunt now I'm going to check out what the Botanic Gardens has got see if they've got anything that I haven't got in my collection and see if I can get some propagating material uh, it's just one of those sort of smallish genera that you can collect in a garden without it becoming overbearing Like, say, for instance, you wanted to collect camellias, well, you could very easily have a seriously dark green garden where you'd have to hand out miner's lamps for people (laughs) to get around, Uh, uh, particularly on a suburban-sized block. I always remember Bob Withers when he was alive. He held the Species Camellia Collection for GPCAA, and he had hundreds of the things, but they were all in pots in a suburban garden in Melbourne. And so it was an important collection, but one could not say it was an important landscape. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. And I do remember talking for a camellia conference years ago that they had at the Hilton Hotel, and this American guy came up to me afterwards because my topic, again, was something that was a little bit sort of left of field, and I was talking about companion plants for camellias, and, and I called the talk What Camellias Can't Do. Uh, and uh, so I talked about deciduosity and ground – well, ground cover. You can actually get ground cover camellias now, but you couldn't back then. Uh, and – and things that comedians can't do, they don't rustle like a bamboo will. you know. So there's all these different things I used. And I had this American guy come up to me afterwards and said, I now understand why so many people who see my collection of plants don't find it interesting except for those camellia collectors out there because I've got 250,000 camellias, and they're all in pots.
5: Oh,
2: <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, there's another serious collector but not a gardener in some yeah. senses. I yeah. mean, Gardeners and collectors don't always fit.
1: No, that's true. And you've got about three other collections, don't you, Stephen?
2: Uh, I have, actually. In in the garden at home, I've got the Sambucus collection, so the elderflower collection, and there's about 20-odd plants in that collection at the moment. And I've just had my own seedling come up, which is quite unique, so I'm quite excited. Uh, I've got my first, I don't know whether it'll be a, a real winner or not, but it's a very pretty Sambucus, so it was just a freak seedling that came up in the garden. I thought, that looks a bit different, so I potted it up. And it's turned out to be quite different. So I'll plant it out this year. It's still in a pot, but I'll plant it out and we might name it in due course. I've got a few ideas on names. Um, Again, they're very useful, Sambucus, because they also keep away witches. Um, And I've got the Acanthus collection. So the bear's breeches or whatever you want to call them, the oyster plants. Uh, I've got about 20 of those. And at the nursery, I hold the Dogwood collection, the Cornus collection. So I've got the Corners collection at the nursery. The other two collections are in the garden at home, neither of which are going to be looking at their best at our opening at the end of May, but anyhow, it doesn't matter.
3: Yeah, uh, Acanthus, what would they be doing at this time? So they're Just starting to come up come again so yeah. they'll
2: look alright. Yeah, the, the Acanthus fresh. will hopefully be looking fresh and alright, mm. at least most of them. I do have some species that go down at this time of the year, but you know, so there you go. And eventually we'll have the Osmanthus collection
1: as well. So Lovely. do all the plants have to be in the ground, or can you have some in pots? No, Collections
2: can be pot-held. It depends on what they are. Yeah. I mean, our collector of Lachenalias, for instance, sake, all of his plants are grown in pots so that he can control them and look after them properly. I mean, if you let Lachenalias loose into the garden, they'd all get muddled up and you wouldn't know where you were. So, in fact, his collection is a pot-grown collection that is registered. So it depends on what you're growing. I mean, we wouldn't register an oak collection in pots. <laughs> For, you know, reasonably obvious (laughs) reasons. Um, So what we will register is very, or how we will register different collections is very dependent on the genus itself. Um, uh, But most things are probably better as open ground grown collections, we would think. Um, And we're always on the lookout for more people to join the organisation or to not only join, but perhaps even consider holding a collection because uh, we've just registered a a canner collection up at the Bendigo Botanic Gardens. Uh, They've got quite an impressive heritage canner collection up there. And they're also holding the lavender collection there that uh, was passed on to them by Rosemary Holmes. Um, So they've got two registered collections at the Bendigo Botanic Gardens. Um, So, yeah, there's collections sort of starting to show up in all sorts of places. And what you collect is really up to you. But we do give some preference to collections that are holding cultivars. Mm -hmm. Because cultivated plants can disappear out of cultivation and they're gone forever. A wild plant, as long as it's still in the wild, it can be recollected, even if it disappears out of cultivation. But you know, if it's a man-bred hybrid, once they're gone, they're gone. And so we do give some preference to collections that, that are of cultivars. We're really keen on collections that are Australian cultivar collections because it's the only place you're likely to find them is here. Mm. Uh, a lot of our plants don't end up going overseas. Uh, some of our natives do, but apart from that, a lot of our bread, you know, people who are breeding dahlias here or chrizzies here or cannas here or yeah. whatever else, those plants tend to just stay in Australia. They don't often go overseas. So if we don't protect those cultivars, they'll disappear altogether.
1: Yeah. And is there a minimum number of plants that you'd have in a collection? No.
2: No, it's, it's very, again, dependent on the genus. Um, yeah. I know in the English equivalent, they have a, a collection holder of the genus Cercidophyllum, which has one species, and about one subspecies, and about three cultivars.
1: Well, that sounds like my kind of collection. Yeah, yeah. So,
2: (laughs) you know, so we would consider a collection like that. The the only thing that you have to have is that the collection is reasonably representative of what it is. So if it's only got three or four plants in the genus, we'd expect you to probably have three or four. Uh, But if it's something like, say, a, a collection of Alistair Clark roses we wouldn't necessarily expect you to have all Alistair Clark roses because there were some that seemed to have disappeared and they're virtually impossible to get and some that nobody's been able to re-identify and all that sort of stuff. But all those that are reasonably well known, we'd expect them to be in the collection um, and documented and so forth. Um, you know, some people hold huge collections of plant material. Uh, but most of the collections we've got here in Australia are, are moderate-sized collections. Um, and obviously, you know, they need to be collections that are growing in an environment that suits the genus. So there'd be no sense in me growing... I don't know, a tropical orchid genus mm. at Mount mm. Macedon unless I had a, a tropical conservatory of to course, grow them yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, but it's a good place for me to hold a cornice collection, yeah. for instance, like the dogwoods do very well up there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if somebody was holding, well, the Melton Botanic Gardens is in the midst of getting their Eremophila collection organised because they've got their dryland botanic gardens at Melton. And they're also going to probably hold a collection of, um, uh, of dwarf eucalypts. Yep. Yeah. Uh, at Melton as well.
1: So suitable for the environment they're in. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it would be Makes logical. Sense. And of yeah. course
2: you don't necessarily hold the only collection of its type. It's not about registering your collection and then you have the national collection. Yeah. If somebody else wants to hold the same sort of collection in a different environment or different area that's good too mm. because it gives you a backup collection. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got three, maybe even four Selvia collections uh, dotted around. What, quali- lot- what qualifies a, a eucalypt to be dwarf well that would be up to them to set their parameters and to let us know and then for us to accept them Mm. it's not about us telling them what they have to do it's about them telling us what they want to do and then we accept it as is or not Mm -hmm. i mean we've got a collector up in uh, toowoomba in queensland that has registered a rhododendron collection and a something else collection i'm trying to think what the other collection is he's registered it might even be an Old World Rose Collection or an Alistair Clark Rose Collection, something like that. But he also wanted to register a collection that he called his Rare Plant Collection, which was a muddle of all sorts of plants that were basically cool climate, his premise being that they were things that could still grow and perform in Toowoomba, but you wouldn't expect them to grow in Queensland. But there was no way of hanging that collection together, so mm. we, we said no, because we couldn't really see how it could be properly Registered because it wasn't a group of of related plants. It was just a whole, and some of them weren't particularly rare, particularly from a southern Australian perspective. It was just the fact that he was growing them in Queensland. So we we knocked him back. Um, But he's got two other registered collections anyway. I think he might have been one of those people who's collecting collections. Um, (laughs) So sometimes you might have to hold them back as well.
1: Yeah, now I suppose we should go to a caller. Um, On the line this morning we have Lee in Kilsarth And Mum, I do believe that's you, so happy (laughs) Mum. The <laughs> you there? Thank you. Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, um, so you've called in on a very good day. Um, you've got a question about persimmon. So what, do, what would you yes. like to ask? I've, I've Obviously, bought, my I've advice isn't good enough for
0: you. I want, <laughs> I want to espalier it. And I've put some wire up on the fence. And the, the actual plant has got two branches. Now, I just want to know how I go about pruning it. hmm
2: well, if I was going to try an espalier a persimmon, uh, which I might add is going to be a little bit of a challenge because the wood is quite hard and it's going to be quite difficult to pull it back into place. So okay. you'll need to do it regularly while before the wood hardens. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you're likely to snap branches off it instead of getting them where you want them to be. Um, right. You're going to need more than two branches to make a proper espalier. So I would actually prune that tree back quite hard. Uh, probably, I don't know, probably four or five buds from where the branches originate.
0: Oh, If that makes okay. sense. Yeah.
2: then next year you'll hopefully have several branches breaking from each of those spots and then you can start training those out and removing those that are surplus to your requirements.
7: Oh, so that would okay. be how I
2: would start because you're going to need more than two branches if you're going to create an espalier, unless you're going to create a step over, which is one of those things where they just have them growing up really low to the ground and you can step over your espalier.
1: Yeah, now mum's got no, well, hers going quite close to the fence, so yeah. creating quite a few branches would, would be useful, yeah. but look nice yeah.
2: Yeah, and and look, they're a pretty tree, uh, and most things can be espaliered as long as you put enough time, effort, and, and stuff into it. Um, it really is only a matter of pruning and pulling things back and tying them into place. Uh, and it's very dependent. I wouldn't imagine that a person is going to make a good formal espalier, I think it'd be quite difficult. But you could have a quite nice, informal, tied back, flat almost plant. A f- yeah, a fan shape yeah. almost. I just
0: wanted for the fruit, really. I'd, you know, it doesn't really matter to Me, how many branches it's got, but if the more branches it has, the more fruit it'll have, yeah,
2: uh, in theory, yes, yeah. Yes. So if it's a nice, okay. branchy little tree, and it will also cover the fence better as well if it's fairly branchy. I mean, if you ended up with just a couple of limbs being trained out against the fence, it's going to look odd, and it's certainly not going to cover the fence, and you're certainly not going to get a lot of persimmons.
1: Okay, thank you very much indeed. Oh, That's good on you, mum. Have a nice day.
3: Thank you. Bye.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice of so. her to call in. All right, and um. Yes, and now we're going to go to Laura in North Melbourne. Good morning, Laura.
7: Good morning. Um, I've put some compost, which i bought in bags, on a garden that has sunk. Now, the compost hasn't really composted completely. It's still got things in it. Would it be a good idea to put some blood and bone on top?
2: Well, it's never a bad idea. <laughs> uh, yes, but
7: if I... if If I don't and the stuff breaks down more, will it take or temperatures out. Oh, of the, the
2: nitrogen the nit- drawdown? Yes. Look, The nitrogen draw- drawdown is one of those things that I think you need to ignore to a certain extent. As right. long as you're not digging stuff into the ground where it's it's then taking up nitrogen and it's rotting down process, the nitrogen drawdown only takes nitrogen out of the very top layer of soil mm-hmm. to rot down the stuff that's above
1: it. And that's more a case mm-hmm. when you're putting mulch on, you know, yeah. the, the pine bark mulch, and, and mm-hmm. that can happen in that instance. But in this case, I mean, you're putting compost on, it's still got... Nutrients in it, so as that breaks down, that'll be feeding the soil.
2: Yeah. But certainly, it doesn't hurt to put the blood and bone down, but you don't need it there for nitrogen drawdown or any right. of those other things. Mm. It will, though, of course, obviously help the compost to rot down a bit faster. Mm. So, there's that side of it if, if you feel that you want to, to
3: do that. You yeah. could put a bit of dolomite lime on as well at this time of the year, that's always okay. good, yeah. sweeten it up. Yeah, yeah. well, now there's with...
7: another problem mm. the, the fence behind was. Um, redone last year with cement blocks. I was told it was sealed and part of it's painted. But I've got a gardenia near it and it has some yellow leaves, not along the veins like or the edges, but just a block of bright yellow on various leaves. Mm-hmm.
3: That's probably the lime in it, isn't it? Well, it could yeah, be, yeah. although it could easily be the cold weather. Yes, uh, all of the above.
2: Yeah, so yes. I'm not so worried about... Concrete these days, as you would have been some years ago, because mm. they don't use as much lime in concrete as they once did. Right. So your your concrete tends not to be as alkaline as it once so was. So
7: just ignore them.
2: Look, they'll probably go away, and it'll be fine in the spring. The the yep. gardenias are going off at this time of the year. I mean, there are subtropical. Oh, I've
7: been doing this for a while.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been cooling down for quite a while yes. too. Uh, but I wouldn't be too worried about it, especially if it's older leaves in, th- in through the plant. It, mm. It's probably just a response to the cold. Uh, as long as the other leaves are still holding a good green... It's all right. I think things will be fine.
1: Is that where you've added the compost, Laura? It is also there, yeah. Okay, well, that'll help as well. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, because that'll yes. tend to be acidic anyway. Yeah.
1: Some yes. liquid
3: seaweed might Absolutely. help too yeah. ...on the yeah. leaves yeah. as well, strengthen oh, it. had
2: lots of seaweed. Yeah, and
3: yeah. then a, a little gentle feed in spring. Right.
2: Not, yeah, so, yeah, so you, you're not doing anything wrong at this stage. So Good. Yeah, so I wouldn't worry too much about it.
3: Thank you. Good on you, Laura. Uh, Thank you. Uh, um, might go
1: to one of your plants, Margot. So you've brought in
3: quite a few as well. Yes, some interesting ones. Um, I bought in um, a new fruiting variety that I've never seen before called a bilberry.
5: Oh. It's... um.
3: Related to a black, uh, sorry, blueberry, and it's got all the same, if not more, they claim antioxidants and antioxidants and all that Yeah, yeah, that's the right right. (laughs) try. But um, it's an interesting one because right now it's doing its autumn uh, defoliating and it's got actually a bit of autumn colour.
2: Mm. Bilberry Uh, is quite tasty. I have had it. mm. They make good bilberry ice cream in parts of North America. and that the way you get your antioxidants
1: and, <laughs> and your sugar, yeah, absolutely, and uh, a, and a bit of calcium. Yeah, that's right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. But bilberries, and it's a nice little shrub, but it's, it's like a nice the, little shrub. It's the like the blue, other blueberries and things. It likes an acidic soil and a cool climate.
3: Yes, all of that. <laughs> but they're really, really slow growing. The grower mm. tells me, and you can tell by the little nodes they're so close together. Mm. So they're quite expensive for the size of plant they are. But you know, if you're wanting some new fruit to try growing in the cool climate areas. Blueberry um, is a good one. How yeah. big do they grow? Uh, it, it's in a pot then. It actually yeah, looks quite nice and applied by forty centimeters. Oh, perfect so. for a pot. Yeah. And he so said this is already you know a few years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So quite slow growing. Quite uh, in slow. fact, a
2: lot of those blueberry relatives are. I've got some. I've got some cuttings in at the moment of the huckleberry. Uh, which is an evergreen blueberry relative and yeah, grow, grows about two centimetres a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and I've got one in the garden that must be, oh, I don't know, the best part of a metre tall. It's been there for 15 or 20 years. And uh, what are the berries like? Black and sweetie. So they look like blueberries, tank. just plain yeah, small, round? Yeah, smaller than a blueberry, yeah. than a commercial blueberry, uh, but not dissimilar in colour. And again, huckleberries make good ice cream. <laughs>
3: yeah. And, wow. Margo, what about the bilberry? What do, what do they look like, the actual berry? Uh like just like a blueberry, but smaller, yeah, and they're a bit squishier. Oh, and They've okay. got a bit of tinge of red to them. Apparently, yep. Stephen, you'd know because yeah. I've never actually seen them fruiting. Yeah, yeah, they
2: are there, and I've eaten them in the wild mm. as I went bare browsing. And in you're Oregon, still alive, <laughs> and I'm still alive. Um, I will have a crack at all those sort of things if I know what I'm looking at. Um, And so I found bilberries and huckleberries and things growing in North America when I was there, and they were in fruit, and I had a crack at them. Lovely. Uh, And, uh, yeah, look, they're they're pleasant, but I don't know that they're that much different in flavour between them. They're all sort of
3: similar. But it's sort of fun to have something that's a little different. Indeed it is. And Zarka?
1: Oh, I was just going to say, if you have just tuned in, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, Graham Sargent from Silky's Rose Farm and Margot McDonald from the Garden Tap Nursery. We are running through until 9.15 this morning, but if you need to run off to Mother's Day commitments, you might want to download the rest of the show later, in which case simply go to www.3cr.org forward slash podcasts and look for the garden. Show, But right now, if you want to ask the panel a question, preferably about gardening, although we would do our best on random subjects, <laughs> give us a call on 9419 That's 9419 And we're now going to go to Margaret in Mount Evelyn. Good morning, Margaret. Good
6: morning. Um, I have a difficult spot in the garden. I'd like advice about how to improve the soil, which is dry, grey stuff and some suitable plants. It is a 75 centimetre wide bed which faces west and it's between a paling fence and a concrete drive. Mm. I've had a root barrier put in which I think will solve a few problems, but the soil is awful. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, organic stuff. You'll need lots of organic stuff. Um, Organic. Yeah, look, and the, the thing with adding organic things to the soil, I'm a great believer in diversity, so... Mix and match a bit, you know, if you mm. can get some uh, different animal manures, blood and bone, compost, rotted compost, uh, uh, old loosened hay, pea straw... wee, worm poo. The list goes on. Aardvark manure, (laughs) if it comes your way. (laughs) Um, Diversity is is very important. Now, if it's a sort of a a silty grey, sort of nothing soil. Exactly. The other thing I would do, and a lot of people don't think to do this, I'd get some, uh, if you can get it, scoria is the best. Scoria? Um, Yeah, quarter-inch scoria rock. Right. um, And dig some scoria rock through it as well, because then that changes the, the constituency of the soil so that it's not all one sort of size of particle Um, scoria also is moisture retentive so it'll hold moisture, it's also a volcanic rock so it's high in trace elements and nutrients Uh, and plants love it that's why people stopped doing scoria driveways, apart from walking Mm. it in on the shag pile, uh, it became a great seed bed for things to grow in Right, And so, obviously, if weeds are growing really well in your driveway, there's got to be something good about the driveway. And so, sort of fine gravel mixed through those really sort of deadpan, nothing soils can often be almost as important as putting organic material in, particularly from the perspective that organic material has to be topped up regularly. You can't just put it on once and walk away. Okay. Uh, so, you need to keep doing it, whereas with the, once you put the gravel through, that will hold the soil open forever.
6: When I'm digging down, how deep should I go? Because it's also fairly shallow. You get into this kind of almost rocky space sort of thing. Yeah, well, if it were me,
2: I'd be going down as deep as I can get. Absolutely. uh, And breaking up that stuff underneath and mixing it through with all of the other Uh, materials as well. when
6: you say deep, do you say 30 centimetres? 40
1: 40 or even,
2: yeah. yeah. I I always say you you should try and double dig, which means going down two spades depths if you can. Uh, And then you end up with a good soil that goes down to a good depth. And, of course, this is a narrow bed, so I'm assuming you're not going to bring a rotary hoe in, but I wouldn't use... If you've got a, a hard pan soil underneath, you should never use a rotary hoe because what it does is it leaves an ice-like slick surface where the yeah, blades are being cutting.
6: I have a four-foot crowbar and it's remarkable what yeah. I can do with yeah,
2: that. Me and my crowbar are quite close. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had to break up a yellow clay soil is what I started with at Massett and I had no topsoil 35 years ago um, and it was just the grey smudge under the gum leaves. Everything else was this whitish-yellowy, horrible clay with an occasional rock in it. Okay. Uh, sounds like my place. Well,
1: there you go. <laughs> sounds like a lot of places around Probably Melbourne, it. I think. Yeah.
6: <laughs> okay, now that gets me the picture of improving soil uh, plants. But it really is hot and dry in summer. I, yeah. I water, but it will get a lot of hot sun. What
3: about one of Stephen's osmanthuses? Perfect.
2: They could could. Uh, uh, but it's a narrowish bed and you've got a driveway, so you do need to be careful what you put in there. Uh, um, and you've got a fence as well, so you might want to screen the fence a little bit. Um, uh, so there's lots of different things you could look at. Uh, certainly there are some climbing plants that would grow quite well, things like Virginia creepers, Boston ivies, uh, all those sorts of things would grow quite well along the fence and give you lovely autumn colour uh, and are reasonably tough and will cope with the heat. Um as far as shrubs are concerned, there's oodles of sun-loving shrubs, so you're probably not terribly limited. It's a matter of whether they grow to the right shape or whether they can be pruned to well, the right shape. Well, what I shape. did
6: put in there, but they're just sitting there and looking really miserable, is um, a native Beckia Yeah. Fine leaf, and it'll, I'm told it'll grow to about one and a half metres, which would hide the fence.
2: Yeah. How, how long ago did you put the beckier in? Two years. Yeah, well I'd be giving up on it about now. Uh, if it hasn't started to kick off by now, uh, it probably won't. And well it's not
6: dead. Yeah, so but that, that's, that's I've the proved worst everything. Yeah, but that's the worst
2: thing that can happen. I'd rather, much rather things die. Then it takes all the indecision out of the the whole thing. You know, have something there sitting sulking for two years—that's uh, that, just a, an affront. Well, as I
6: say, like I didn't look after the soil first. Yeah, and that's, that's always the issue. Have done.
2: Yeah, and look, I'd be inclined to suggest you turn the beakers into sacrificial offerings, um, and turn them into you, compost. Yeah, yeah, and you do need to get into that ground. And whilst you've got plants in place, it's hard it makes to do it difficult. Underneath. That's right. So just take a deep breath grab hold of the base of the trunk of the beckies, give them a good tug, they'll probably come straight out of the ground, uh, and then start from scratch and get your ground in good order. And I'll just make a couple of other th- suggestions or ideas that could be worthwhile considering. Uh, there are some very nice upright clumping bamboos. Oh, yeah. Which would look lovely along a fence line and give you a lovely soft effect. And even okay. if they fluffed out a bit, the car can brush past them without damaging mm. the car or the bamboo. Right. Uh, and... Somewhere that tends to be a little dry in summer and quite hot is often a good place to get some of the South African and uh, warmer climate bulbs growing. So, if you want something down at ground level, you could put in things like nerenes, belladonna's, um, spring flowering things like um, daffodils, uh, grape hyacinths, all those sort of things, because they die down in the summer, so they don't need any moisture during the summer months. So, if you're looking for colour at ground level, there's a multitude of good bulbs. Even, dare I say, some of the beautiful and stay-at-home ornamental oxalises.
6: I no. Oh Um, come on! uh, uh, I'm interested to hear the bulbs like the nerines because I've actually got nerines and they've stopped flowering because they've grown where I've got shady tree over So that might be an idea to sort of somewhere to move
2: your nerines. Yeah. So you know, so there's a few ideas that could be good and and keep you entertained. Um, and, and, yes, you've just got to pick the right things that are going to grow in that narrow bed that aren't going to be a problem. I mean, most of Graham's roses are likely to be an issue if the car brushes past them. Uh, and so unless there's a very fastidious rose out there that you can buy, and Graham's sort of making strange facial noise at the faces of you the You could put
4: some really nice pillar-type ro- yeah, roses. Yeah, you know, well, you could perhaps grow yeah. something
2: on the fence, yes. you know, and yes. grow one of the climbing or pillar-type roses. Yes. But certainly most of the bush roses and things are probably going to grow out and get too broad yes. in a yes. 75 five centimetre wide I I
6: like the idea of the bamboo and the, I'm not sure what an osmanthus is, I'll go to my local nursery and find out. Yeah, (laughs)
2: yes, have a look at what they look like, but there's oodles of interesting things. Actually, I did even bring something down today that I might mention in passing that could do the job. There is a semi-dwarf bay tree that you can get now, Um, and this can get to two metres or more, but it's quite slow growing and it's very prunable. So you can keep it in, in, in order very well. And it's one I'm starting to sell to people who are looking for a bay tree for a pot because it, it stays quite small. It's unfortunately called Little Limp. Um, uh, I'm not sure about Little Limp. But anyhow, it's a, a classical bay tree, but it's not going to grow into a great big tree. Um, so, and you've got the lovely scented foliage. You can go and do a chicken tory or whatever uh, on your way down the driveway.
6: Okay.
4: So there's oodles of things to select from. You've just
2: got to be a bit inventive, but
4: you do need to work on the ground. Kit, kit, yes. Chicken catchatory maybe is coming up <laughs> <laughs>
8: Okay, thank you very much Thanks That's Margaret
1: Bye Alright, and uh, we go to Lindsay in Nunawading. Good morning Lindsay
8: Hello, Hello uh, panel uh, I'm just inquiring about a um, sandpaper creek fig Ficus coronata mm-hmm. um, It's growing very healthily It has uh, lots of flowers in the spring and summer and autumn uh but what it misses, I think is a little um wasp that um goes into the fig and will um uh fertilize the flower mm-hmm. so that they stay on the tree and um you know start fruits yes they they will drop off you have numerous little buds dropping off because they're, they're not fertilized, so I'm just wondering if there's anybody out there who may have um, one that fruits, which would probably mean that they've got the Yeah,
9: they've got the, the wasp.
8: wasp.
2: Yeah.
8: Yeah, so... Um, You're putting in tree- a plea, basically. Sorry?
2: You're putting in a plea.
8: That's right, yes. yes. If anybody out there <laughs> um, is... Uh, look, it probably wouldn't be till the um, spring, you know, late spring, summer period. Um, if there's anybody out there who's uh you know yes who's getting fruit on there, or, there yes, yep. i would i would uh, you know be keen to you know do a swap with something else or, or whatever yeah i'm
2: sure people will share their wasps i don't yeah. i don't yeah, imagine yeah, anybody I, would I, have a problem with that <laughs> <laughs> um, that's good all right yeah. so the issue now is we need to have some way of people getting in touch with you if they uh-huh. are you prepared to give your phone number out over the air uh yes, yep. Yeah, because I, I can't imagine anybody's going to ring you unless they can help you. Yeah, that, that's so right. So perhaps if you just give us your phone number over the air, and if anybody out there has the native sandpaper fig that actually fruits, then uh, Lindsay wants to hear from you.
8: Yeah, that'd be great, yep. <laughs> All right,
2: so what's your phone number? 9-878-7403. Right. Did you get that as well, A.B.? Yep, in case so that's somebody... nine eight seven eight seven four zero
1: three. 7403.
2: Yes. That's Fantastic. Yeah, All right. right, well, no promises, but who knows who's yes, out there who right. might be able to help you. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, yes. see what happens. Yeah. All right. Well, the best of luck with that. Thank and, you very uh, much. Hopefully yes. somebody will be in touch. Okay.
1: Hmm, that's interesting, isn't it? Now, yeah. I've heard of um, getting good bugs in the mail, but yeah. Uh, yeah, not native wasps. Yeah,
2: well, who knows? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, our viewing audience is is diverse, to say the least. So anything is possible. That's, that's quite. That's true.
1: true. All right, now uh, we're going to go to Sue in Lilydale. Good morning, Sue. Mm,
10: good morning. Thank you again for a wonderful program. Um, I have two quick questions, if I may. I sure. hope they quick, anyway. I have a reasonably um, long, reasonably long bed, which is about twenty metres. Um, we had to actually remove three large um, cypress trees, and I'm trying to create or make the bed as uh, one. My very creative friend has suggested um, putting um, a couple of pots on either on either side of the bed which, in fact, I have put bots, pots on the actual base of the cypress, so we haven't dug the root out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to sort of tie it in together, and a lot of the rest of the bed is probably uh, geraniums. Yeah. And also I've actually transplanted some the, um I'm not quite sure what variety it is, but it's fairly large. Yeah. So yeah. currently, because I just thought I would try the pots, I've actually got a, a, I think it's a cherry guava and a strawberry guava and a bay tree, which is not a dwarf bay tree. Yeah. But I would imagine it really does need to have some sort of consistency. And my creative friends suggested that a conifer type thing in those um, pots would be too formal for my garden.
2: Yeah. Oh, look, there's lots so, of more informal plants you could put in.
10: And I get, look, yes.
2: all of these things come down to personal taste. If you yeah. like the look of what you've got, then stick with it. I mean, I always say to people, I'd rather they do whatever they do with conviction than to do nothing at all or uh, or just follow fashions and do what other people tell them to do. So it oh. is, to a certain extent, dependent on what you like the look of because it's about the art form of gardening, not about the science of gardening that you really got an issue with at this stage. So yeah. you need to have a sense of what you would like. And there's dozens of different things I mean there's plenty of conifers that don't grow formally for a start so you can get very informal rugged looking conifers that in fact could work quite well but you know yeah. not standing in front of your garden and looking at it myself I can't be the judge of that and that's going to be up to you so you know if you were at all interested in conifers yes there are conifers that would do it some of the dwarf pines make like giant bonsais which look really pretty Uh, and and some of them can even get cones on them and Mm. you know they can be really quite handsome Uh, uh, and Mm. you can get many many years out of them so I certainly wouldn't discourage you from doing that and in fact the one thing I would say for pots if you're going to grow something in a pot the one thing I like people to consider is that if you're going to put something in a pot it's got to look different from the plants around it because otherwise what's the point in having the pot so the pot yes
0: I agree you know the plant
2: has to be a feature in the pot so Correct. texturally or colour wise or shape wise, it has to vary from everything else, otherwise there's no point.
10: Yes, I agree with you. That's why I don't really like the the ones that I've actually got in there. <laughs> yeah, because
2: no. they're probably just green blobs and they're not actually yes. doing anything particularly yes. exciting. Correct. Um, So, yes, the conifers you could look at. uh, I'm sure some of the other panellists will have some ideas, but I mentioned clumping bamboo a minute ago. Some of the bamboos make very good pot plants, and texturally they're quite different and interesting. And you can get bamboos that grow to almost any height you want. And in a tub, you don't even have to restrict yourself to clumping bamboos because you can plant a running bamboo and control it within the pot. Uh, So you could look at something along that line. There's a group of plants called nandinas, which are sometimes called sacred bamboos, although they're not bamboos. They're actually related to berberus. Uh, and they can make very good uh, texturally interesting pot plants and there's some nice new forms of those getting around. Um, You could, in fact, have three bay trees that you trimmed and turned into, you know, balls on sticks or pyramids or whatever so that you've got a defined shape that is there. Um, You know, so there's lots of different ways you could look at it, but certainly whatever you put in the pots has to look different. It could be even something with strappy leaves because you've got geraniums and tucriums. You could have... Lamandras or Dianellas or Flaxes or Cordelines, you know, with those sort of strappy leaves. If you like that strappy look, I mean, I'm a bit over it because all of Caroline Springs seems to be <laughs> disappearing under strappy leaf plants. But uh, they can be quite good uh, as feature plants, and that's what they should have been. They shouldn't have been plants that we used to fill a whole garden. They should have been feature plants that we used as a an eye catching component of a garden bed or in a pot. So. Yeah. There's a few ideas.
1: I think an idea, Sue, is to sort of work out what you actually want. Like, would you want really colourful flowers or do you want something with a nice smell or are you happy with really good foliage? Do you want the height? Work out exactly what it is that you're looking for and then narrow it down from
3: there, yeah. Yeah. If you're interested in um, different-shaped conifers, I could suggest going up to – Ferny Creek, there's a beautiful nursery up there. You'll get really inspired. It's called Conifer Gardens, and uh, that is just worth a trip alone. And not far from there, there's um, some public gardens that are open. I can't think...
2: Yeah, well, What's you've got the Tyndale Gardens. Yeah, the Tyndale Gardens, away. yeah, really close. Uh, and, of them, course, <laughs> by the time you're up there, you could go to the Rhododendron Gardens. You could go to... Um, Cloud Hill <laughs>
5: Cloud
2: also. Hill, mm-hmm. Uh There's a whole range of places you can mm. go up there, so you can spend the whole a day. A day's
3: worth. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you can go yeah. to a nice... And
2: Denman you'll place.
10: surely
3: see something that just fits the bill.
2: Mm. Yeah, okay. so if you did want to go that way, that would certainly be uh, a possibility. Okay,
10: that's fantastic. Can I ask one quick question? Sure. Question? Oh, it's just that we have a... One of our um, animals died and um, buried,
0: mm-hmm.
10: um, and we're actually wanting a tree that has orange, whether it be flowers or fruit. That particular. Yes. So um, I did actually plant a um, pomegranate, mm-hmm. but someone told me that really does tend, although I know I think it can create it as more of a tree, but they
2: thought it was more shrub-like than a tree. Oh, look, in time you can, you can trunk a pomegranate up and turn it into a little tree. It'll never be a hugely big tree. No. I mean, it is a shrub with delusions of grandeur. Um, <laughs> but you can create a tree-like form out of it. Um, and it does have lovely autumn colour. It does have wonderful flowers. They do have attractive fruit and they're really tough as billy-o. Um, so, I would, you know, if you've already got that, I wouldn't discourage you from keeping it.
10: No, but I wondered if
2: there was any other... Well, uh, Margot suggested perhaps a persimmon, which is probably a bit more tree-like. Um, okay. And they're and lovely. very exposed
10: position, will that matter?
2: shouldn't matter. Persimmon's okay. reasonably tough and hardy. Um, but there are lots and lots of things that will get either uh, orangey-red fruit or orangey-coloured autumn foliage. So it really is a, uh, dependent on Your area and how big a tree you want. I mean, I was talking this morning about um, uh, Sorbus, the uh, rowan trees, and Sorbus domestica in my garden at the moment is brilliant orange as it's about to drop its foliage. Uh, But it can grow to five or six metres. So it really depends on what you're looking for.
10: Yes, I think probably about three or four metres.
2: Yeah, well, you should be able to get your pomegranate up to that. Okay. Again, a trip up to the hills. Yeah, well, quite possibly, and you could come our way. Now there are hills, that, well actually mountains we call them at Mount Macedon um, and look there's plenty of different suggestions we can make if you decide that you're just not going to go with the pomegranate.
10: Okay, that's fantastic. Thank you very much for your help. That's no, a pleasure. Good on you, sir. Okay. Thank you. Bye.
1: Now given that it is Mother's Day, we really should get to a couple of roses that you've brought in, Graham. So do you want to um, yeah start with, I don't know, that pink one looks amazing. And it oh. looks very motherish. It does.
4: It's, it's a rose that's called Busy Bee. Oh, that sounds like a mother as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> to all you mums. Well, we'll remember it as that, won't we, Stephen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And in the rose world, it's, it's considered to be the most prolific rose that's been produced in a lot of years. Yeah. And it won't get very tall. It's around about um, 400 millimetres high and would go beautifully along the border or would go really well in a pot. Mm-hmm. And it will go through from um, October right through to May. And so it, it's, a, it's a one that just keeps flowering yes, right through. very yeah. prolific. And bred by Cordys in Germany who bred some of the best roses in the world. Mm-hmm. And the other rose I've got here is is one that um, we've bred at our nursery and it's called Grays Blue. And it also will get about the same height around about um, 400 um, millimetres in height, Uh, does well in the pot, and it's a mauve colour with strong mauve um, down through the actual flower itself. It's a miniature, and um, it's also got a perfume, and it's thornless.
3: And, Graeme, why is it called Grey's Blue?
4: It's Named after me, the breeder.
1: <laughs> 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 so, not grey as in grey.
4: No, well, Diana says that she calls me crazy grazy. So, yeah. we, we the next rose we get will be called crazy grazy, I think. Um, but we've called it that for one of another name, actually. Mm. And um, we, we're still because naming in roses, as people would appreciate, is very, very important. And oh, look, uh,
2: a good name, well, it's not just roses, Graham. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of my bugbears in, in horticulture is that so many nurserymen give plants. I mean, you can't help the botanical name. I mean, that's got to be Latinized, so you've just got to live with that. But cultivar names, some of them give them such dreadful names that the plant is never going to be a winner, either because people can't pronounce the name, they can't spell it, or it's just a naff, silly name that doesn't really give you any sense of the plant or it's not engaging. I mean, the classic... It's more a
1: marketing ploy. Yeah,
2: and and some of them are really sort of cringe-making as well, you know, some of those really sort of cutesy-wootsy names. Um, But to give you a classic example of good and bad plant naming, there's a rhododendron out there, been around since the 1890s, I think, called Pink Pearl. Fantastic name, easy to remember, uh, Connects with the plant because it's pink, um, and it's probably sold more rhododendrons than any other rhododendron. In fact, probably a whole pile of them put together over the years. And yet, having said that, pink pearl is not a particularly good rhododendron. It has slightly yellowy foliage, it's not a particularly bushy grower. The pink has a slight mauve ish stain to it, which isn't actually very pleasant, I don't think. And the flower heads tend to drop out when you get a wind. So, I don't think pink pearl is particularly good. There is a rhododendron out there that has big, clear pink flowers good solid dark green foliage, makes a nice bush, is perfumed to boot. Its only issue apart from its name is it's actually quite hard to propagate, so it's never going to be popular among nurserymen anyway. But unfortunately, it was called Faggata's Favourite. (laughs) It is never. Very
1: popular. It's never going to sell well.
2: I mean, Mrs Faggata, whom it was named after, was probably a lovely lady. But her name isn't going to sell the rhododendron. And I had the same conversation, in a sense, with John Neustieg, who everybody knows is quite a, a well known rose seller in Australia. And John has actually got a rose that he bred that was a, a first generation hybrid between two species. It's a charming little rose. And the Rose Society decided they're going to call it Rosa Neustigii. Mm. And I said to John, well, that's all very charming to have a rose named after you, but nobody's going to be able to pronounce it or spell it. And it's not going to sell a rose. So wouldn't it be better if Rose and eye? if they're determined to do that, is the name for that cross. And then you give each hybrid that comes from the same cross its own cultivar name. So we're now in discussion about what would be a good cultivar name for John's Rose, which is a really pretty rose. What about th-
1: John's Rose? No. Nah, so it's quite it's, simple. Yeah,
2: but it's, pro- it's probably, <laughs> probably too simple, actually. Um, but I saw it in Virginia Haywood's garden, uh, a plant of this rose in Eustegii, and she had it in a bed with a whole pile of native shrubs. And it actually blended Jeez. in beautifully. And I was quite taken with the fact that this little rose looked at home in amongst Corriers and Grevilleas and all that sort of stuff. It didn't look out of place. It had dainty little single pink flowers, Fine greyish green foliage, and it just sat in amongst those natives really well. Mm. So, I've been in serious discussion with John, and I've given him a couple of suggestions which I won't mention at this point because until he decides which way to go, it's a bit unfair to lumber the plant with a possible name that it may not end up with. So, I won't mention what my suggestions have been at this stage. But you know, I'm thinking about John's uh, Dutch heritage and all sorts of things. We're trying to sort of think of a name that epitomises something about the rose, mm. and hopefully, something that'll be easy to remember. Um, and that might link in people's heads so that the plant has a chance of becoming a commercial success. Yeah. So names are really, really important.
1: Well, this Busy Bees one that you brought in, Graham. Mm. the thing I like about it is, um, it, to me, the actual rose itself looks like a climbing rose, you mm-hmm. know, that really, you know, very sort of, um, I don't know, full flower.
4: Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah um, similar similar sort of rose to the rose Dorothy Perkins, the climber, mm. and which has been around... Oh, for forever and it, a day. And loves mildew. Just, it's it's, yeah. it's, yeah, a, it's yeah, the yeah. greatest attribute, yeah. it's mildew. Yeah, well, see, there's that
2: and nice combination between pink and white.
4: Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear. So, so that's an explanation of how we've even come to the name Grey's Blue. Yeah, well, there you go. Mm. And look, it's not
2: an unattractive name. Whether it'll be a good-selling name, it'll be mm. interesting to note. Mm. Um, but names do need to be... Yes. They need to connect in some way or another with the public. If they don't connect with the public, then the plant isn't ever going to sell, no matter how good it is. Mm. Um, so you really have to think names through carefully. And some nurserymen just don't get it, uh, no, unfortunately. Uh, well, and we've ended up with some dreadful names well, on some we have,
3: uh, We've got um, some camellias in the nursery, and I sell them because of the name. Yeah. But also I explain how beautiful the camellia is. The trunk develops this well, great big stem, and it gets all of like a cinnamony bark on it. It, it's not unlike the Lagerstroemia like, yeah. Crepe Myrtles. You're not talking about, j- talking about
2: <laughs> Camellia crapnelliana. I <laughs> am talking
3: about Camellia crapnelliana. And Mr. Krapnel <laughs> discovered it and thought, oh, well, I'll name it after myself. Stupid man. But anyway, <laughs> there you go. It's a good um, Camellia, though, nonetheless. It is fabulous Camellia. Yeah, I love it. But yes,
2: it is an unfortunate yeah. name in but, some ways. But we way,
3: just think. have a little area where we've got some oddments. Yeah. And, it, you know, that's a talking point. Mm-hmm. And we've also got an Ilex, which is you know, a holly bush. Which is called Ilex vomitoria. Oh, Ooh. wonderful, oh. wonderful. It's called
2: that for very good reasons. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, Please explain. Well, uh,
2: you can make a tea out of the leaves, but if it's over consumed, it will make you throw up. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I didn't know it's that. very high in caffeine, um, and it was used by the North American Indians as a tea, um, but had to be used in with discretion. You couldn't just sit down and drink cup after cup because it right. would make you throw up. So vomitorium is actually a very appropriate name, if somewhat off-putting, uh, for the plant. Um, but, you know, so be it. I mean, yeah. I do like the fact that somebody has actually thought out the name as something that has something to do with the
1: plant. I bet yeah. be their six-year-old son named it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and look, kids would love to have
1: an island's Absolutely. vomitorium in their yeah. garden. Yeah. But, yeah. you
3: know, it's the most beautiful plant. It's really tough. Um, it's it's sort of a weeping mm. one, very, very elegant in mm-hmm. the shape,
2: so yeah. yeah yeah and yeah, so great plant, but yes, unfortunate name, but yeah
3: well, I don't know i've I've been talking to customers about it, and it will attract people, yeah, just uh, because of yes, what a
2: conversation Yes, yes yeah yes, and, you know, it can work that way, I, although I don't think it will make it sell well.
4: Uh, in bulk And, and Margot <laughs> you've still got 500 to sell yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know, I only get one at a time <laughs> uh, Oh,
1: We should go to a couple more callers So we'll go to Mark in Gisborne Good morning Mark
5: Oh, Good morning um, Look I've got a nectarine tree And I've um, been spraying it um, with For curly leaf for the last couple of years mm-hmm. And that's all good And I get plenty of fruit But the trouble is that they Then get some sort of mould on the fruit And it starts off on a few fruit, and by the end of its time, all the fruit's completely engulfed, and I don't get to eat any of it. And it it just basically takes over the whole tree like a cancer. I just wonder what I can do to spray for it or what I need to do. Well, first
1: uh, question I'd have, Mark, is when are you spraying the plant for curly leaf?
5: Uh, I spray probably just before it um, has its uh, bulb.
1: just before, up, before just before it buds up, just before they burst. Yeah,
5: And just prior to that, a couple of weeks prior to that.
1: Yeah, well, it does sound like good timing. It actually sounds like it would take control of any other fungal diseases. Yeah, and see, I
2: wouldn't want to spray with anything else. No. Um, I mean, you, you're potentially supposed to be eating this stuff, so I wouldn't want to sort of put any sort of really nasty or toxic sprays onto so the tree. Not white oil or anything like that. Well, white oil's not going to have any real impact on a fungal disease like what you've described, so I'm quite convinced white oil's not going to help. Um, is it in a nice open area where it gets plenty of air circulation? Yeah,
5: it's, um, um, yeah it's in a real good spot, actually.
2: Yeah. yeah, And it's growing well and doing fine otherwise?
5: Yeah, and all the other trees I've got in there with pears and ash apples, they all, I don't have any problem with any of the mm. fruit from all the others. It's just this one tree, and I get plenty of fruit. Yeah.
1: So and and the the it just develops on the fruit itself.
5: Yeah, it starts off with say two or three, and then so you pick them off because you know they're bad. Yeah. But before you know it, another two or three is infected, and and then you just keep every day you go out. You think, well, at least I'll get half the tree, and then just before they're getting you know point of picking, they're, they the mould just takes over and just within two days they have shrunk down to like a, an almond size. Mm, it just
1: that that does sound interesting. Mm. Um, look there's a couple of things that you possibly could do. The first is I mean you might want to spray when the fruits start forming you know by the, by the time they've fully grown and ready to pick you know the yep. fungicide will be well gone obviously you'd be washing them anyway. Um, another thing I'd consider is raking up any leaf litter that you've got around the place and okay. just really tidying up the garden. Try and get rid of as many of those fungal spores as possible. Yep. Um, give the tree um, as, as much as you can reach a, a really good foliar feed with um, liquid seaweed just to try and improve the vigour of the tree because that can right. often help. Okay. Um, yeah, and, any other suggestions, guys? It just what sounds do you think? internal.
3: The whole thing is affected, like it might have root rot or something. It's, it, and if
1: that's Probably happened. If it's
5: a healthy tree, it throws really mm. good leaves. The, the other
2: alternative, of course, is to take the tree out.
5: Yeah, I'm thinking if it does it this year, I'm going to rip it
2: out. Yeah, Uh, yeah, so Marco's (laughs) written down on a piece of paper, buy nectarines from a shop. Uh, (laughs) No. uh, No, no, we're not going to take it that far. Um, But um, look, it it could actually be a variety of nectarine that is not really suited to your area. Uh, I mean, I've got a seedling nectarine in the garden at Macedon, and I'm not that far away from you in Gisborne. uh, And my nectarine, well, what the birds leave me, uh, gets laden in fruit, and I've never had a problem. Uh, And it's just a seedling nectarine that a friend had given me off her tree that was just down the street. Uh, And it fruits really well. Um, So it may just be an inappropriate nectarine for your climatic zone, because you've got to remember that nectarines don't like it too sort of... um, humid and we can get quite humid weather around us at times ah, uh, and right. you know they often do better in the warmer drier climates oh, I see. Uh, so it, it, it yep. might be just an inappropriate variety and yep. maybe you plant a different variety of nectarine. Do you know which one it was you put in or no, I've got no idea yeah um, that then creates the issue that you could replant the same variety without knowing yeah. um, but you know if I have a tree that doesn't perform well for long enough I give up
5: yeah, I'm a bit the same. You
2: know, although,
1: I, although, Mark, what I was going to say, I mean, often with nectarines, the fruit can cluster on branches together quite closely. So if you picked out every, you know, second piece of fruit when it's small and just allow that extra bit of space, yep. that that could help as well.
5: Yeah, that's a good idea. I yeah. agree with but that.
2: But look, at the end of the day, you've got to decide whether it's worth it or not. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I certainly am not prepared to spray serious chemicals yeah. on my fruit trees because otherwise I can buy fruit that's already had serious sprays mm-hmm. on them
3: from the greengrocer. Yeah. Yep. You know, you we don't much. even sell nectarines in Canton because they just don't thrive. No, they're it, they're,
2: they're very borderline.
3: The, they are, and they mm-hmm. get. Um, there might be a variety that does better than others, but we're not. I'm not aware of it. Okay, but they uh, get hit by the late frost, so yeah. yep. you know the reverse is true. Mm. Okay,
1: thank you. Well, oh, good on you, Mark. Thank you. And uh, oh, now we are going to go to Ken and Sunshine, and uh, I'm glad you've called in, Ken, because I lost your number.
9: Oh, did you? <laughs> I did. Uh, uh, um, Look. Well, I've just—I never wanted to work again. I'm on the pension, and I never wanted to work. But you've—I've just found you've just found me a job. Oh, I want he? to become a tea person at Parliament really oh yes that tea'd be lovely wouldn't it you could make them all sick <laughs>
2: yeah i i'm not sure what it tastes like either because i've never tried the tea from ilex vomitorium uh, for obvious <laughs> reasons uh i've only read about its usage uh and it just yeah i sort of figure that life's too short to worry about you know uh things like that i'd rather have my liptons or tiny tips actually but you're they, you know, right.
9: yeah. but the politicians, Got strong stomach. Let's see how good they are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I rang up to uh, to just give you a, an update on the park. Oh,
2: yeah. how's it all going, Ken?
9: Well, well, I don't know whether they're playing games or not, but it gives us more time. They're going to have, um, and they're going to have an independent inquiry which we can all go into. Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, Ken, before you go on, maybe you could give um, other listeners an update on on actually what what's going on.
9: Okay. Then. Well, what, what actually happened, the Rimbank Council is not actually council, it's commissioners, and they should be there to just oversee the, the place. And uh, what they're doing is selling off our parklands. There's actually 24 small parks. They're not huge. They're small parks, two or three blocks. And uh, they're starting to try and sell them off. Well, we're fighting the one here. There's a, um, a block it has got, it's about a four block. Four House Block Park. So um, we've um, the West Giant Action Group, which has been going for 40 years, it, uh, it, it jumped in and, and, and we're taking them on. But it's just so stupid because surely the politicians can sign it off. Now, I went into, into um, a politician's office and minister's office and um, spoke to his staff. And I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the park over. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. And they said, don't threaten us. I said, look, I'm, I'm just telling you what we're going to do. We want to save our parks. But anyway, anyway um, it's amazing. So we might, I, we won't, but if we lost it, it's through stupidity.
1: And and what can other people do to help?
9: Well, when 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 we um, anyone from the western suburbs when we when we go and occupy it, we just love everyone to come and join us because this can happen in any in any suburb. And
1: sure, how can people find out more about it? Like if they want to come along to one of your action days.
9: Well, um, they can they can ring me and leave me their numbers, and I can ring them. My my mobile is uh, o double four eight four. Two, eight double oh, is my house phone number is nine three double one double three four nine now when when the when the time comes, I believe we 're going to win it because everybody is just so determined and the and, and the communities i mean every campaign you 've got to build up a campaign and it 's building up and the committee's uh is extraordinary and and they 're very good people and um so we're going to we're, we're going to um, we're going to go the full hundred yards. Well done. Thank you very much. Good Thank on you, Cam. I'll still keep you informed.
1: Yep, yeah. yep. No, what's that... Thanks
9: very much for all your support.
1: Oh, you're welcome. And yeah. when
9: we have the indigenous, when we we're going to plant indigenous trees in the area, and we're getting them from um, the Newport Indigenous um, Nursery, and uh, we're going to get someone to. Um, so an Aboriginal people to come down from St Albans. We've got hold of people, Aboriginal people from St Albans and we're going to do a smoke smoking ceremony. So it would be fantastic if everybody came. Fantastic. Oh, that, that, well good done. on yeah. you, Ken. Because we're going to invite the press. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> sounds great. People, and new people too. All
1: right, good on you. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for ringing in. All right, well, now we've got a few more callers. We'll try and get through everyone this morning. Um, we'll go to Ruth in Bentley. Good morning, Ruth. Oh,
0: good morning, everyone. Um, just quickly, I had a phone call when I think with Merrill was talking about some type of a weeping camellia. What did I hear wrongly?
5: Oh. No, there
2: are ground cover camellias that are sometimes grafted onto standards uh, that can be grown yeah. as a weeper, and it's a variety called Marge Miller.
5: Yes, I
0: know that one. Yeah. Oh, I thought there was a, another... Well, there is part. another
2: one out there, but I'm not sure how available it is, just called Snow,
0: yes, which is that, also that, a ground-cover camellia. I'm, I'm, um, I'm wanting to get something a bit different, and uh, it's terribly hard. You get the same things being repeated through the nurseries all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: well,
0: I'm you need to go to
2: nurseries that have unusual plants. Like yes, mine and Margo's, and you yes. mean a collector's nursery up in the Danny No, <laughs> you, know, but, uh, you I need to support I... us all.
0: <laughs> if I had car access, it would be a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> no,
2: thank you anyway. That's a pleasure, Ruth.
0: Bye.
1: Ah, oh, and uh, now we've got uh, Graham. Own, own Graham. Hi, Graham, how are you? Hello, hello
3: there, AB hey, and gang, how are you going? Good, well, I, was I was hoping good. you'd ring in and help solve <laughs> that nectarine <laughs> problem. George.
11: Commercially, so we got to get got to know the switch. brown brown rot is the term that has uh-huh. be uh, put upon it. It's the curse of the stone fruit industry, and if you get wet, humid weather, it's it, it's very very hard to control. Indeed, I think AB mentioned sanitation, which is so important. You know, like you say, any of that old fruit that's dropped to the ground or leaves, you get get, get rid of that through through, 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 through the late autumn and uh, winter time. And the other thing is, they'll often. Uh,
2: So what would you do as a treatment though, Graham, if you were going to try and keep this nectarine tree? So manca's there, but petal fall. Yeah, yeah, so that yeah. might help help him with it, because it sounds to me like he's got it really bad. Because it takes all his fruit out.
1: Great advice. And, Graeme, that mancozeb that you put on petal fall, is that only if the tree's diseased or is that something that you can do to improve the vigour of all trees?
11: Well, it's, it's, it's just a good fungicide. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think, you know, with this one, you know, at least you, you, you're spraying it early, very early in, in, in the fruit's life and, and so it's not going to be something that we're going to imbibe with any, any worry. Mm-hmm. Good. But, uh, yeah,
1: that's the way I'd see it. Yeah, wonderful. Good on you, Graeme. Thanks. Always good to hear from an expert. Good. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Bye, Graeme. Bye for now. Uh, All right. And uh, we've got uh, Jill in East Malvern. Good morning, Jill. Good morning.
0: Uh, Hi, Stephen. Hi, everybody else that I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've got Nandina domestica that's grown very, very tall, very Mm. lanky. If I cut it back, will it grow again?
2: Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You can't kill Nandina domestica (laughs) with pruning.
0: And so should I cut it all the way to the ground?
2: Well, it probably would be a good idea because if you cut halfway up, it's going to shoot from where you've cut, Mm. so you'll leave the bare legs still. Yeah. So I would cut it back right back, but I wouldn't do it right now. No. Not because you'd do the plant any harm, you won't. But because we're going into the cold weather now, it's just going to stop. It's not going to do anything. So you'd be better to leave your slightly lanky plant there than have no plant to look at at all exactly. and then prune it back in the spring when active growth is about to start and then things will happen really quickly good
0: afterwards. a good feed in spring.
2: Mm. Yep, and, I, and it will quickly I... shoot away again. Uh, I might add Nandina domestica in its old wild form Part of its character is that sort of long, sort of upright sort of habit it has. So when you say it's upright and lanky, uh, in some people's eyes, that might be seen as vertical and uh, an accent plant. So uh, it really is dependent on your own attitude to how things look. Um, uh, I've got quite a few... Sort of
0: about about five feet. Yeah, Yeah. well,
2: that's about average height for an Andina. Oh,
0: right, but it's got no leaves on those
2: stalks. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and look, that's Mm. fairly normal from them. And Uh, the other
0: thing, can I ask? You know that um, structural plant that some people call honey locust? You know, it's got those, um, it has reddish, rough sort of flower occasionally. And the very structured. major. Now that's got the same problem. It's tall.
3: Yeah,
2: well, yeah, but the Melianthus you cut down every year anyway. Right. Oh, uh, when it gets goodness. too tall, uh, it loses all the lower leaves. Uh, and what I do with mine is I cut mine down to ground level and yeah. I do it every summer. Because by the winter, then it's regrown itself, and I've got all these lovely silver leaves for the winter.
0: Oh, oh, well, I've missed out, haven't I? Yeah, so I'd leave
2: it now and let <laughs> it do its spring thing again. Yeah, well, when, when well, you can cut it in the spring if you want, but I like to cut it midsummer so that it's refurbished and looking at its absolute peak for the winter. Because then I've got something really special to look at in the winter when a lot of other things are dormant.
0: Okay, well, thanks for that advice. I'll I'll sharpen the secateurs. <laughs> right, good season. for you. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye for now.
1: Oh, great. Well, um, so what's everybody up to for Mother's Day? Work. Work. <laughs> oh. Work, <no>. work. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go and eat cake with my mother-in-law. Oh, oh well, that's well, a really nice idea, Amy. My
3: daughter came up last night mm. and she's going to cook dinner for, for us tonight. Terrible. Nice. But she's going into the nursery this morning to do, you know, wrapping because uh, the other oh. half has just gone wide when I said to coming into 3CR He said but it's Mother's Day <laughs> Yeah. oh yes yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. it'll be interesting to see how busy a Mother's Day we do have in the nurseries because yeah, it's, it's a fairly wet. bleak out it there is. today yes. so I'm hoping a few of you mothers are, are not frightened of the Oh of perfect the perfect day for wandering around well yeah. I yeah. think it is put on a coat and bring a brolly and, right. for goodness sake you know it's easier to go and walk around a nursery and select plants than it is to dig your garden on a wet day
3: oh
4: geez
1: yes. that's yeah. true take that mum is true.
4: for a walk around the nursery. Give me some fresh air and buy us something green. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, we have reached the end of our time here this morning, so thank you to Jenny very much for manning the phones. Thanks to Pete for operating the computer once again. Thanks to Margot, Graham and Stephen for sharing your horticultural expertise and thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A B Bishop and until next week, may all your soils be loam.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Very well, Aby.